Psalm 104. The Scripture says, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in His works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have been. May my meditations be pleasing to Him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let the sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank You that You are the great God, and You are worthy of our praise. For You not only have created all that exists, but You now make a new creation in Christ so that the church is a place for sinners who are being redeemed. We pray for that work even in our midst. Lord Jesus, be glorified as we lift You up. And Holy Spirit, we pray that You will be the One who convicts and speaks to us as we sing, pray, and worship. And we pray as the Lord Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Believer, in whom do you trust? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the resurrection of saints, 
the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We find as we ask the Lord to pardon us from our sins, He does exactly that. You know, one of the unique things about uh, the Catholic Church and even the Anglican Church is that the minister will state, God forgives you. I make that declaration this morning. If we earnestly ask for forgiveness, He does that. He forgives us of our sins. And so, what a mighty God we serve. Let's uh, turn in our hymn books to hymn number 97 as we sing the song, We Praise You, O God, Our Redeemer, Creator. together for our responsive reading of Psalm 91. You'll find it in the back of your hymn books, number 817, page 817. We're going to read responsively, so if you will read the bold print after I read the light. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God and my trust. Surely He will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers, and under His wings will find You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day. Nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. 
A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. If you make the Most High your dwelling, even the Lord, who is my refuge? For He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. Because He loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue Him. He will call upon me and I will answer Him and I will be with Him in trouble. I will deliver Him and honor Him. With long life will I satisfy Him and show Him my salvation. Amen. What an encouragement. I'm going to ask the kids to come forward, if you will, for just a minute. about a big word. But it is a word that each of us faces and will face more as you get older in school. It is the term world view. Can you say that? World view. That simply means how do people look at the world? Everybody has a world view. And as you go to school, you'll find that teachers will be teaching you a worldview. Now there's a big difference between a Christian or Bible worldview and often what you hear people sharing with you on TV or even in the classroom. You find that a worldview always answers four questions. The first question is, why is there something rather than nothing? Why is it we can look around us and we see all of this? You walk outside and you see the cloud, and at night you see the stars and the moon and all of these things. Why? Is it there rather than just nothing? The second question that a worldview will answer is, what's gone wrong? Because uh, Alex and Jacob, for the last couple of weeks, and even Cade, when he's come over to their house, they've gone out the back door and they had to run. You know why? There was a wasp nest right under the steps. And Alex got stung twice. Why are there wasps? And why is there poison ivy? Jacob, why are there termites? And why do people get tumors? Why is there war 
We see the terrible pictures of Ukraine. And why is there murder? You see, there's something wrong in our world. And so the question is, what's gone wrong? The third question that shapes the worldview is, is there a rescue or a remedy? Is there any hope for people whose lives have really gone wrong? And then the final question is, where is history taking us? Where is it going? We find the Bible gives us the answer for the four questions of worldview. Why is there something rather than nothing? If you start in Genesis, you find it says God created all things. That's how it came out of nothing. He created it. Well, what? how did the world get into so much trouble where there's wasp termites and poison ivy? Because Addison. You got it! Are you homeschooled? Yes, sir. That's I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that good answer. Adam got us into trouble. And that causes all the problems we face today. We find that is there a rescue or remedy? Is there any hope? And we find that the Bible takes us to Jesus. And the fact that He died so that He could save us and make us into new creatures. Well, where's it all going? What's the end? Well, you go from Genesis all the way to Revelation and you find that there is the fulfillment of the kingdom of Christ. He's going to come back. You know, a lot of the problems we face will, will not be remedied till then when He appears. But that's the answer. Now, the reason I talk to you about a worldview is in the sermon... We're going to talk about what happens when the preeminent Christ begins to walk among people. What happens? And what you're going to find is there are two worldviews being expressed in the Scripture. And so I want you to give real ear. Don't just draw and color and do that, but I want you to listen real carefully and see if you can see the person who created all things why there's a problem, what's the remedy, and then what's the end? Where's it going? Okay, can you do that? Yes, sir. All right. When I get at the back door and you're walking out shaking hands with me, I'm going to say, did you answer the four questions? Okay? All right. Go sit. While they're being seated, let's take our hymn books and turn to hymn number 92.
As we come to the pastoral prayer, again, because I'm the stranger here, in a way, I don't know all the prayer requests, so again, I'm just going to lead us in categories, and I'm going to ask you to pray for the ones that come to your mind. I was informed this morning in the pre-Sunday school hour that Ricky and Sammy are both uh, having health issues that are pretty scary, and so we need to pray for them, I know. But there are many more that I'm unaware of. So let's bow in prayer. Father, we do thank You that we can come before You, and You hear us and look upon us as though You were looking on Your Son. You hear us as You would hear Him. And we thank You that that is possible because of the cross. It's possible because of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And so with confidence, Your people come before You. And we want to lift up the specific needs in our own personal family. Pray for the things that You're burdened about. Let's pray for the needs in our church family. Lift up the people that come to your mind. Let's pray for the specific issues that are facing our nation and pray for our elected leaders. Let's pray for those who serve us in the military, in the police, and in the fire departments and EMS. Pray for them. Let's lift up our missionaries. Father, we thank You that we can bring before You these particular needs. And we know that You are adequate and sufficient to take care of all matters. And so we trust them into Your powerful providence, knowing that You do all things well. We trust You with that because we pray in the merit and name of our Savior. Amen.
Boy, isn't it great to have the choir back? I was here, what, a little over a month ago, and there was no choir, and it felt really strange up here. But boy, I was sitting there, and soprano was coming in my left ear, and alto in my right ear, and and tenors were sweeping down over me. I hope it sounds as good way back there as it did up here. It was great. We're going to turn in the Scripture to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. I was here a little over a month ago and I preached from Colossians chapter 1. So I I know you probably don't remember. But in looking at the declaration of who Christ is in Colossians, you find that it first of all talked about how Jesus was sufficient and preeminent over all creation. We said there were five things. He's God. He created all that exists. He sustains all things. And it was all created for Him. And then the second part of that passage looked at Christ being sufficient and preeminent over the new creation. That is, over the church. Now, anytime you turn to the Gospels, what you will find is that Jesus is fulfilling, He's maintaining those two roles. Sufficient preeminent over creation, and then sufficient and preeminent in building His kingdom, the church. He's always involved in those things. And you see it quite obviously when you turn to Mark chapter 5. Just just look to the left of it at the end of chapter 4. What do you find there? What's the heading in your Bible? Mine says, Jesus calmed the storm. Now you you know the event. They're rowing. Jesus is sleeping. And the waves start building and sloshing over in the boat. And they're scared they're going to drown. So they shake Him and say, We're going to drown! And he gets up and says, O ye of little faith, have you not learned that I am the one who is sufficient and preeminent over all creation? Can you turn to me? I sustain all things. And he speaks, and the sea is calm. Now, we can, we can marvel at big stories like that, but is He really preeminent in the things we face each day? Are we people of little faith? Or do we turn to Him and say, Lord, I, I know You're in control. You've got to step into my circumstances. You need to take care of me. 
But then secondly, we turn to chapter 5, which we're going to read, and all of a sudden you find Jesus being sufficient and preeminent in the redeeming and saving and the whole mission of the church. He's sufficient and supreme in that. So let's turn to the fifth chapter, and this is what we're going to meditate on. Kids, again, remember the four questions. All right? We already looked at one of them, didn't we? Who started it all? You know, Jesus is over creation. He's over the storm and all that. All right. I got you. I'm going to ask you later, okay? All right. Here we go. Chapter 5. And I remind you again, this is not a storybook story. This is the Word of God. He shares it with us for a reason. He says, they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the garrison. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met Him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind Him anymore, not even with chains. For He often had been bound with shackles, that's chains around His feet, and with chains around his body. But he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs on the mountain, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus at a distance, afar, he comes running and he falls down before him. The NASV, if you have that particular translation in your lap, it says he worshiped him. Fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What? Have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come, I missed something. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What's your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had a legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus, please leave our country. Get out of our region. 
As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by the demons begged him, Can I go with you? I want to be with you. And Jesus did not permit him and said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how He has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Let's bow and ask the Lord to minister to us. Father, we see an account of where the preeminent Savior, who not only controls all creation, but walks among men who are troubled and works in them. Oh Lord, as we look at this, we pray that You will touch our hearts that Jesus is our remedy. He is our hope. He is the One who can help and change us. Lord, if I say anything that is out of line with You and Your purposes and Your Word, may it be soon forgotten. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like for us to look at four things in this passage. The first couple I'm going to move rather quickly. What I'd like for you to notice first of all is that the utmost that man can do against human depravity the utmost that man can do against human depravity. Kids, you remember the questions. How did all of this come out of nothing? What went wrong? And then, what's the remedy? Well, you're going to see two worldviews. One is going to be saying, this is how you deal with the problem. And then you're going to turn to the Bible and it's going to say, the preeminent Christ walks among us and He is the answer. You see the two views here. Those are the two views. Now notice the utmost that man can do. Sidlow Baxter, as he comments on this passage, he says, these chains were a substitute for sanity. Or I might rephrase it, the chains are a substitute for safety and peace. We may think them a poor substitute, but I imagine if you and I had lived in that vicinity at that time, we might have slept better at night with the knowledge that those chains were there. My friends... The world's way of dealing with problems are like chains. They're mere substitutes for what Christ can do. We have substitutes today, don't we? Medicate the insane. Mental health interdictors in troubled areas in large cities. Incarcerate the criminals. 
Refund the police. Put safety officers in our schools. Build border walls. Ban assault weapons. Put international sanctions on rogue nations. Equip allies with state-of-the-art weapons. That's the world's way of dealing with human depravity. And we see secondly, in verses 3 and 4, the basic weakness in man dealing with human depravity. It's no doubt that the town people got the stoutest chains available to them. They went to the blacksmith and he built some chains and he says, I guarantee these chains will take care of the problem. He'll never break these chains. But what does the Scripture tell us in verses 3 and 4? They could not bind Him. And when that demonic state came over Him, just tear the shackles and the chains apart. It was not adequate You know, Satan has some terrible tactics. The Scripture tells us that he is a liar and a killer. He wants to alienate. He wants to remove hope. He wants to see degradation and confusion and restlessness and self-destruction. When you look at this man, what do you find? He's screaming at night, running through the hills, living in a cemetery. He's cutting himself, the Scripture says. And all of that is the result of Satan's work. But the best the world can do is not adequate. C.S. Lewis says, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God to make him happy. And I tell you personally, if you want to learn the depth of your depravity, then try to obey God. Try to follow the commands. Try to be the person, the man or woman you're supposed to be. You know what you'll find? You miserably fail. And many of the health issues, both mental and physical, are caused because people have lost hope and they've failed in taking care of the problem of their own depravity. We walk with guilt and shame. And some people even cry out about that by cutting themselves. If only the pain in my body can be greater than the pain in my soul. That's what's happening here. The chains strike a pathetic contrast with the way Jesus deals with human depravity. If you go on in verses 6-17, through we find Jesus stepping into the life of this one they call the demoniac. 
What happens? Immediately the Lord diagnoses the fearful fit as an extreme case of demonic spirit. The central citadel of the will has been beaten down and there was an almost complete control of the human personality. But what do you see? The Lord who is God, who created all things, seen and unseen, who sustains all of creation, who says, I am Lord before Me, every knee shall bow and every voice declare My rule. He who calmed the storm now commands the demons to leave. I want you to realize what Jesus is doing is not outward chains, but inward change. Do you understand my southern accent? Jesus' remedy is not chains. Something I do on the outside, but He wants to come in and change us on the inside. What an amazing thing. Notice that when the local inhabitants come in response to the terrifying news of the slaughter of all the pigs, what do they find? How do they find the demoniac? Well, if the fact of him bowing down is what the NASV says, he is worshiping. You find him sitting. There's restfulness where there had been restlessness. He was clothed. Where there was degradation, now there is decency. It says He was in His right mind. There is now harmony where there was confusion and insanity. What a change. Hey kids, what's the remedy for human sinfulness? Jesus has got to save you. And if you're saying, even as a young child, I need help with myself. You know, I remember my youngest daughter. <coughs> Excuse me, I didn't mean to call on you. <coughs> this is really gross. I'm sorry. <coughs> Have you ever had something just kind of cling to your tonsils and you're trying to talk and. It sounds like gurgling. That's what I feel like. <clears throat> My youngest daughter, Katie, even at a young age like you children, she had a terrible temper. And if she got mad at you, she would just scratch you in the face or kick you or do something like that. And I can remember one day she came to her mommy and she said, Mommy, I need help. Now kids, what she was saying was she recognized that she couldn't please God and she had things wrong inside of her and she needed help. If you're that way, don't be ashamed to go to your mom or dad and say, Mommy, Dad, I need help. Because what they'll do is they'll point you to Jesus and help you. 
to make sure He's your Savior and He's working in your life. They'll help you do that. And that's what Beth did with Katie. She told her, now every time you feel that coming on yourself like you're getting angry, I give you permission to run right to your room. And what I want you to do is I want you to get down on your knees and I want you to say, Lord, I'm wrestling with my anger. I want to hit my brother or my sisters. And I ask You to change me. Because you see, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. And what you find with this demoniac is when Jesus comes in, all of a sudden what you see is the fruit of the Spirit taking root in His life. Because Jesus changes. And He changed Him. Brothers, sisters, young people, this is what you need. Don't look for chains. Look for change. That's the remedy. Now how do the people respond? They were frightened by the radical power to subdue demons and quiet the troubled heart. It didn't make sense. How could this man with a quiet spirit control and subdue the unsubduable? In fear, they rejected the doctor of the soul, the liberator of the imprisoned spirit, the God-man worthy of worship. And they said, how about get back on your boat and leave? Now what you find, is that still happening today, kids? Remember, what's the remedy? Some people will say you need chains or you need this or you need that. You'll find people telling you what you need. And then you'll find Jesus coming along and He's transforming lives and what one side will say to the other. You know, this religion thing and this Jesus thing, we can't talk about that in school. You know, you can't talk about it in public. Man, pray at a football game? You can't do that. And they'll say, we have to push Jesus out of the public arena. And He has to go back in the churches. That's the only place you can talk about Him. Some people will choose chains over interchange. Anne Graham Lott I think it was back during Sandy Hook Massacre where the shooter went into the elementary school and killed, what, 14 people? A couple of teachers. And Graham Lott was asked rather cynically, where was God in all of that? Here's what she said. She said, for years, we've been telling God to get out of our schools, to get out of our government, and to get out of our lives. And being the gentleman he is, I believe he has calmly backed out. How can we expect God to give us His blessing and His protection if we demand that He leave us alone? What would happen in a large city in our country 
If a portion of the funds spent to protect us from human depravity were spent on evangelism and church planting, what if Jesus and the Ten Commandments were put back in our classrooms? Franklin Graham, just a couple of weeks ago, responding to the administration's sense that if you get rid of guns and other things, you know we'll have peace. Just chain up the guns and we'll be alright. Franklin Graham says this, President Biden and his administration wants to ban certain caliber handguns. That won't help the problem. What would make a difference is a ban on all the movies, television shows, and video games graphically depicting gun violence, bloody gore, and death. We're a nation addicted to violence, and we call it entertainment. Until we get a handle on this problem, we will see more and more of these kinds of tragic incidents across our nation We've taken God out of the schools and most homes are leaving God out of rearing their children. He is the solution. The more we turn our backs on God and His Word, the more problems we have as individuals and a nation. That's the commentary. But listen, this is not anything new. If you go back to the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, he says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The power of God changes lives. But let's get to the last point. And that is, What's Jesus' remedy? What does He prescribe? What is His plan? Well, you find it in verses 18, 19, and 20 in our passage. What's the solution? Well, our gut reaction is almost to become preppers. We say... I want to get out of this mess and I want to live in my little Christian community. I want to get out of the world. Let me just spend time with Jesus. Well, what you find is that's exactly what this redeemed demoniac says. When Jesus gets in the boat, He comes over and He says, Let me go with you. I want to be with you. This is amazing. Come on. Let me get in the boat. And you know what Jesus says to him? He says, nope. You can't come with me. True, heaven is your home, but not now. I want you to go back to the old neighborhood and tell them what the Lord has done for you and how He's had mercy on you. That is the commission that I give you. Go to the Decapolis. You see that in verse 20? What is the Decapolis? Well, Deca is ten. Polis is cities. It is the ten Greek cities 
that were primarily on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. So if you look at your map, the Sea of Galilee at the top, Jordan River running down to the Dead Sea, they're mostly on the east side. There's only one of them that was on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. The northernmost city was Damascus. That was the northernmost Decapolis city. It is now, you know, the capital of Syria. The southernmost was called Philadelphia. Guess what it is today? It is Amman, Jordan, the capital of Jordan. Two are in Israel. Scythopolis is the city Bethshan, which is kind of below the Sea of Galilee and west. Is Beth Shan. We remember Beth Shan because when uh, Saul went out to fight his last battle with the Philistines, you remember they killed him. Or actually, he fell on his sword. His sons were killed as well. And what the Philistines did was when the battle was over, they go up and start looking through the dead. They were probably scavenging stuff off the bodies. But they find Saul. And they chop his head off and they take his armor to the temple at, oh, I can't remember which god it was, but anyway, what they do is they take Saul's body to Beth Shan and they hang it on a spike on the wall. That's Beth Shan, where they hung him. That is the only Decapolis on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. Hippos is right on the Sea of Galilee. In 2012, Beth and I slept above Hippos because right now there is a kibbutz. It's called Kibbutz Ein Gev, and it's a resort with all sorts of motel rooms and cafeterias and all sorts, but it is right on top of Hippos, one of those ten cities. What is a, a Decapolis? Well, it was an autonomous city-state on the eastern frontier of the Roman Empire. It was the melting pot of culture. You find there was the great influence of Greek thought and philosophy. But also there were all these other people that were coming in, so it was a melting pot but it's also a place of conflicts because you had different cultures meeting together. Today, if you went to New York City, you'd get a sense of what it's like because you would find Chinatown. You would find Irish, Jewish, and Muslim communities all rubbing shoulders. It is the challenge of the Gospel. It is the place if we're going to reach the world we focus upon. The place where all of the cultures come and melt together. Jesus sends Him to the Decapolis. Now how does a redeemed madman evangelize the Greek city-state, the metropolis? How does a Gentile barbarian witness to the Greek or let's make it personal. How do I face 
the fearful challenge of the crucified life. For the Scripture says, the life that I'm supposed to live is where I die to myself and I follow the commands and commissions of my Savior. How do I live it? I want to suggest a few things that Jesus tells us. Turn back in Mark to chapter 1. Let's look first of all at verse 17. Oh my goodness, I'm already time to quit. Give me a few minutes. Don't rush off. I I saw somebody go to the bathroom. If you need to, go ahead. But but just hang with me. Just a few more minutes. While you find that passage, look. well, you can't look up at me if you're finding the passage. Listen. The first thing that I have to wrestle with is my fear. It is the fear that I'm not smart enough or talented enough to be a witness for Christ in the metropolis. I'm not able to. But what we find here is the greatest assurance. Who does Jesus send? A redeemed demoniac. Is that the type of person you choose to go and be the evangelist? No! Again, Jesus does not choose gifted people and sends them. He chooses ordinary people and He gifts them. And what He'll do is He'll take ordinary you that has a hard time talking to people, doesn't know the Bible very well, all of this, and He'll say, I can make you my witness in the metropolis. That's what He does here. That's the first thing we know. Now, how do we do it? What does verse 17 say in chapter 1? See what it says there? Jesus said, Come, follow Me, and I will make you a fisherman of men. Now, I think the man there is really general. It's fisherwomen of women and fishermen of men. He's speaking to all of us. And notice what He says here. First of all, He says, come follow Me. In other words, I have to be taught by Jesus through the Scripture and prayer. I have to become a disciple. Now listen, my friend. If you're like me, I wrestle with it. Because I have so many interests. When I wake up, I'm thinking about working on this trailer, doing that, fishing, working in the shop. I've got to work in the yard. And all of these pressures and all of these passions come flooding into my life. Are you like that? What we have to do is say, Jesus, I'm going to come and meet You first before I do anything else. And you just pick out a reading plan where you're going to read through the Scriptures. Three or four chapters, two chapters, one chapter starting out if you want to. But I'm going to just start reading. And I'm going to say, Jesus, I want to become Your disciple. I want You to teach me. 
I want you to teach me, first of all, how you change me. And then I want you to give me ways to talk to my neighbors in Winsboro. I want to influence Winsboro. I want to influence my office. You teach me. That's coming to Jesus. That's praying the Scriptures. And you know what? He will do it. He will, by communion with Him and our study of the Scriptures, give us the words to say as fishermen and fisherwomen. Look at Mark chapter 13 now. Flip over to chapter 13. Look at verse 9. He's talking about the last days. We're in them, folks. We're in the last days. He says you are going to experience animosity. You're going to experience political intimidation. But, what does he say? Verse, verse 9. You must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to local councils, flogged in the synagogues on account of Me. You will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And, what's the and there? Look at it. And the Gospel must first be preached to all nations. You see, that's the commission, isn't it? Whenever you are arrested or brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it's not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brothers will betray brothers to death, fathers, his children, so forth and so on. It's going to be troubled times. But if you are a disciple of Christ and you're in His Word and you're talking to Him about how to be a witness, guess what's going to happen when you sit down at the lunch table with one of your friends and they start talking about all the troubles? They're just going to bring all of that Scripture, all of that discipleship back to your mind and you're going to be able to just talk. And it will amaze you. How did I say that? Where did that come from? It's the Holy Spirit using you to be a witness. Now, that's kind of a scary thing to do. But I want you to realize that we can face fear and uncertainty with the existential assurance that Jesus is with us. I'm, I'm almost through now. Listen, listen to me. If you go to 2 Kings chapter 6, what you find is the king of Syria is trying to kill Elisha. Why is he doing it? Because a prophet has a way of telling people what's going to happen. And you know, Elisha's getting in the way of all the battle plans of the king of Assyria. Oh, excuse me, Syria, not Assyria. Syria. And so they find out where Elisha is and they send their army and surround the little town that he's in. And in the morning, the young servant of Elisha goes out and everybody's looking over the wall and he goes to look and here the Syrians are all around. And guess why they're there? To get one man, Elisha. 
So he runs back and he says, Oh my Lord, what shall we do? You know what Elisha says? Don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those that are with them. And so Elisha bows his head and says a real quick prayer. He says, Lord, open the eyes of my servant so that he can see. And that young man looks around and on the hills all around is this fiery army. Angelic army that is protecting him and Elisha. Listen, my friends, it is no different today. When you have fears, I want you to remember Elisha. That the angel of the Lord encamps around me. Jesus is with me. You remember Psalm 23, 4 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. And then finally, you're still not convinced because you're no theologian. Well, what you find is that what Jesus told him to do was just tell his story. You tell them how I have been merciful to you. How I have rescued you. My friends, all you have to do is tell your story. Be willing to tell your story. That's the commission. We're called to go to the Decapolis. That's the story. Bow with me in prayer. Father, we thank You for this amazing declaration of what it's like when the preeminent, sufficient Savior walks among us. We thank You for that. Do that work in our hearts. Save the unsaved and strengthen the saved to be obedient to You and the commission You've given us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at the insert in your Bible. Let's sing together a song which talks about the fact that Jesus is what we need. In Christ alone, my hope is found.
the Lord now with our morning offering, but I remind you, money is not what He wants. He wants your heart. And so as you give your tithes and offerings, say, Lord, I give myself as I give my gifts.
Let's commit our gifts to the Lord. Father, as we have given our tithes and offerings, and as we have done this as a sign that we give ourselves to You, we pray that You'll take the funds and us and use them in the Great Commission to reach a lost world with the Gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing. Receive the benediction. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus our Savior and the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all as you seek to go out to the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.